Let's take our Bibles today, please, and turn to the New Testament Gospel of Mark, the 11th chapter of Mark. I'm going to have the sermon a little bit earlier this morning because you can see the Lord's Supper is prepared before us. So at the end of our time together, if you're able to stay with us, you're more than welcome to take of the Lord's Supper. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're right with God and other people, you're certainly welcome to remember his death, burial, and resurrection by taking the bread and the cup. We'll also have a benevolent offering during our communion time that we'll share with others. And uh, we have a special presentation today at the very close of our service. So let's spend some time right now in the middle of the hour in Mark chapter 11. I'd like to read to you verses 15 to 19. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. Here's what we read. Mark eleven fifteen. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. It's finally the month of March, and that means that spring is nearly here. We are pivoting away from winter and towards Easter. And it would be lovely if the Easter season was just a little bit longer. It's certainly not nearly as long as the Christmas season. Christmas seems to go, Pastor Duncan, I didn't even see you. Wow, when did you sneak in? Hi, I'm so glad to see you. Welcome. Boy, you should be preaching up here. Wow, I'm really, oh, I don't know if my sermon's up to it now. It was a good sermon until I saw you sitting there. I'm glad you're here. And Mrs. Duncan, too. I'm so glad to see both of you. Wow, how great to have them. Um, we, uh, we're in Mark chapter 11, and uh, I'm just saying that I wish that the Christmas season, Easter season, was nearly as long as Christmas, because we have from early November till late December to talk about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we seem to only get about maybe a week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday to discuss the most significant of all events, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's, if we can, extend the Easter season just a little bit as we come to late winter and early spring. We're about six weeks from Palm Sunday and Easter. And I'd like to spend some time in this great amount of material that we have between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. I don't know if you realize it, but there's 89 chapters in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John add them all together. 89 chapters 30 of those chapters, a full one-third, deal with that last week in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we won't have at the Easter season enough Sundays to deal with some of that significant information. So I'd like to just elongate Easter a little bit and spend the next few weeks leading up to Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday 
In Mark chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, in a brand new series of Sunday morning sermons that we're going to call The Last Steps of the Greatest Journey on Earth. And that's the journey that our Lord Jesus Christ took 2,000 years ago. And we're going to look at the last steps of the greatest journey on earth from Mark chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, leading up to Resurrection Sunday in just several weeks' time. So let's start by thinking about some of the great journeys that there have been in the history of humanity and in the scriptures. I mean, all the families of the earth took great journeys back in Genesis chapter number 10 and Genesis chapter number 11. When you remember the Tower of Babel, all nations were of one language and lived in one place. And they used that collection of people and that brilliance to bring about their own glory rather than the glory of God. Remember, they said, we're going to build a great city for ourselves and make a great name for ourselves. And they, their whole ambition was driven by that old sin that's still in all of us called pride. And whenever you gather together with any other person in an ambition that is driven by selfish pride, you can be certain that the Lord is going to come down and destroy and scatter whatever it is that you're up to. And that's what he did back in Genesis chapter number 10 and 11. He came down to the Tower of Babel. He scattered the people. And they, they were driven on these tremendous journeys to the far corners of the earth. Our indigenous people, for example, would have arrived in this great dominion of Canada as a result, eventually, of being spread from the Tower of Babel. These are just some of the journeys that our families took in ancient days. You think of Abraham and the great journey that he took in Genesis chapter number 12. He and his dear wife Sarah, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, get away from your father's house and from your kindred into a promised land that I will show you. And God directed Abraham's steps every step of the way to that great nation of Israel, the promised land. And if you're here today and you're thinking of taking a journey of any sort, and you're looking for some confirmation that it's from the Lord, today might be the very day that you receive that confirmation. If you're in doubt and wondering whether you should go or not, we just think about all of those great people in the scriptures whom the Lord directed and the Lord guided and he protected and he provided for. And you take this as your confirmation. If it's God who's directing you, then step out in faith like old Abraham did and take those steps towards your new great journey. It was so many tremendous journeys. We could talk about the nation of Israel that went down into Egypt and then back to the promised land, ultimately into Babylon and then back to the promised land. And then after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know they were scattered into the nations around the world until about 1948 when they started to regather into that promised land once again. And they're still regathering today for that coming kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ will one day establish. There are lots of great journeys in history and in the scripture, but none compare, even the journeys that you've taken to get here today, none compare to the journey that our Lord Jesus Christ took 2,000 years ago. Dr. Harold Wilmington says that there were 72 steps to that journey. I don't know how many we can count, but say, for example, our Lord Jesus Christ went from heaven down to Bethlehem. 
to that little manger in Bethlehem. He went from Bethlehem into Jerusalem where he was circumcised on the eighth day. Then he went back to Bethlehem where you might remember that Herod tried to kill all the babies under age two and Jesus went from Bethlehem down into Egypt. Then after a few years in Egypt, he went from Egypt way up into Nazareth where his parents had originally come from. Then from Nazareth, he went to Jerusalem at age 12, where he stood in the temple and he taught the doctors and the lawyers with his great wisdom. Then back up to Nazareth to be a a carpenter until he was about the age of 30. And then from Nazareth, he went to the River Jordan where he was baptized by John the Baptist. And that's where the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And Jesus was driven into the wilderness then. Forty days and forty nights, he was tempted of the devil. He went from there to Cana of Galilee, where he performed his first miracle of turning the water into wine. And then throughout Galilee and back to Jerusalem and back to Galilee and over to Samaria and throughout Israel for about three and a half years, our Lord Jesus Christ taught, healed, raised the dead, and displayed in beautiful glory, keeping the law and honoring his heavenly Father. And then he ultimately was back in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, went into the temple, cleansed the temple, taught the people, and on Good Friday, went to the cross, died for our sins, put into the tomb, raised again on Easter Sunday, ascended where he sits sits right now at the right hand of the Father, to come again and receive us unto his own, and then establish his kingdom, and create a new heaven and a new earth. The greatest journey in the history of humanity is the journey that our Lord Jesus Christ took from heaven to earth back to heaven and one day coming again to earth to receive all who believe him. We're going to look just at the last few steps of that journey on earth in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way from now until Easter Sunday. And today I want you to see what our Lord Jesus Christ did just in the first few moments of the last step of that great journey as he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday you remember that he rode in you can see that earlier in Mark chapter 11 he rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem they shouted Hosanna in verse number 9 and then look at what it says in verse number 11 it says he went into the temple and I would suggest to you today that two of the first things our Lord Jesus Christ did is he prayed and he purified or cleansed his temple. He prayed, and he purified or cleansed his temple. On this great journey that he was taking towards the cross, he prayed, and he purified his temple. Let's look at his praying first. Look in verse number 11 of Mark chapter 11. Our Lord Jesus Christ has just gotten off that little donkey that he rode so humbly into Jerusalem. And in verse 11, where's the first place that he goes when he's in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? It says that he went into the temple. Now you can see in verse 11 that he didn't stay long. He simply looked around and then he left. And the reason is because it was quite late in the day. However, the next day it says he was back in the temple. If you look, for example, in verse 12, and then you look down in verse number 15, He came to Jerusalem the next day, and he went back into the temple. Now, it doesn't tell us on either day or in any of the Gospels what his purpose was in going into the temple. 
But I think we can pick it up clearly from what he said when he was there on the second day. In verse 17, Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now this is a quotation back from Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah taught that the temple, though it was certainly used for many physical offerings, they brought sacrifices of lambs and blood for generations to the temple. However, Isaiah teaches them to remember that the offerings that were to be offered at the temple were not to be solely or strictly physical in their nature. They were actually supposed to bring spiritual offerings like prayer, and in fact all of those physical offerings pointed to the greatest offering of all, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah tries to remind the people that the temple was not just made for physical things or physical activity or physical sacrifices and offerings. They were really supposed to be primarily for spiritual activity and spiritual offerings like prayer. And I believe that the Lord going into the temple and saying this place is supposed to be a place of prayer, that's what he expected to find there. He expected to find the people engaged in spiritual activity. He expected to find people praying so that he could pray with them and beside them and for them. And he wanted to pray. He went into the temple surely to pray. And yet sadly, when he arrived, nothing of the sort was going going on there. And how often people just like the Lord go into a house where Christians are gathered together or a church or a place of worship and they expect to find what spiritual activity they expect to find kindness they expect to find forgiveness they expect to find goodness and faith and yet oftentimes as I'm sure you are well aware you can gather with other believers or go into a church and it is not at all what you expected to find there They're not at all doing the things or behaving in the way. And and shame to us for the times that we have been engaged in things that are not at all honoring to the Lord in the place that he has established. Now, our Lord had two reactions, you can see. For example, in verse number 11, what did he do? He went in, he looked around, and he left. That was day one. I'm sure they weren't doing any spiritual activity on Palm Sunday in the temple. Now the next day, when he drives out the money changers in verse 15, he goes in, he's in the temple again, surely to pray, and he begins to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. So here are two very different reactions to coming into the temple and probably finding essentially the same thing on both occasions. And yet the reaction is very different. And I think that both reactions are proper and right. They are from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ and the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he never did anything wrong. So if you go into a place someday and you don't find them doing what you expected them to be doing, you go into your son's room and you find something you never expected to find, or you go into your husband's closet and you find something you never expected to find, or you go into church and you say, what in the world is going on here? Well, I would say you probably need the wisdom of Solomon to decide which response is the best response, but both are appropriate. It's perfectly appropriate to keep your mouth shut, and turn around, walk away, and say, oh, I better pray for that person. And it's perfectly acceptable to be outraged by it. 
Anger is a human emotion that is perfectly acceptable, the same as all of your other emotions. It's not always wrong to be angry. You can be angry and not sin, Ephesians says. So you can express anger in an appropriate way. It's called righteous anger. And there are lots of things in the world that ought to make us angry and make us upset. And this should not be happening, and I won't stand for it. There are lots of reasons why you should get very upset. And our Lord Jesus Christ here takes the money changers and drives them out of the temple and overturns the tables because he had gone expecting to find a place where he could pray and speak to his heavenly Father. And he says, I I couldn't even bow on my knees in this place, the things that are going on here. It's so unholy and unrighteous and ungodly. There is far too little prayer in the temple in the days of Jesus. And I would suggest the same is true today. There's far too little prayer in the lives of God's people. We pray far too little. I'm reminded of a beautiful story. You probably have heard of the author Andrew Murray. He has a large number of books on prayer, each one of them valuable, one of them the ministry of intercession. He has this lovely story where he confesses both in himself and about another, another minister. This minister was a well-known pastor in Scotland. And the pastor said, in, in our church, he was talking to a group of other pastors, he says, in our church, He said, the deacons, they faithfully serve in their role. Uh, Just like in Acts chapter 6, they were appointed so that they could make the collection and distribute the collection. And he said, in our church, the deacons do that faithfully. They're always taking up the collection. They're distributing the collection. And they, they bring my salary to me regularly. And then he said... Uh, sometimes when the deacons bring me my salary and I think of how faithfully they have fulfilled their role, I'm convicted in my heart because it says in Acts 6 that the seven men were appointed so that the apostles could give themselves to prayer. And the minister said, every so often when I receive my salary and I think of the faithfulness of the deacons in fulfilling their role, I think I should give my salary back because I have not been faithful in fulfilling my role to pray. And if ministers are not praying as faithfully as they should, then maybe Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and choir members and others within the membership of the church are not praying as they ought to. Our Lord expected to come into the temple and find prayer. And since it wasn't there, and they were doing all of these physical and selfish activities, he not only went to the temple to pray, he purged or purified or cleansed his temple as one of his first steps in the last steps of that greatest journey of all. And he drove out the money changers. And our Lord Jesus Christ did it in righteous anger as he drove out those money changers And I love how the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians makes a parallel between what happened on that day and what we need to do every day of our life. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, perhaps reflecting on our Lord cleansing his temple, 
Here's what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God. So a person might say, well, what does this old account of the Lord Jesus Christ driving out the money changers have to do with me? Should we spend the morning talking about not selling things in the church or not having any distribution of money within the church? Those are all valid points and good to discuss. But what that driving out of the money changers in the temple really can apply to in your life is that the Bible says that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart. And rather than having a physical temple of gold in Jerusalem where we go to worship, we worship God from our heart. And he lives within us now forevermore, bringing bright light and wisdom and righteousness right into our soul. And now every one of you who believe in Christ, you are temples of God and you should be far more concerned with what happens inside your heart than what happens anyplace else on the planet we can get very excited and upset about what's going on in government and what's happening in the local church and what's happening down at our neighbor's house but God wants to ask you about your temple your body your mind, your heart. Is there anything in there that if he were to come today, he would not want to find? Like he speaks here of ungodly relationships or idolatry, like putting other things in front of the Lord. Is there anything in your heart or mind that he would want to drive out? And if you're honest, you can probably think of a few things. Especially at the Lord's table, we have to examine ourselves and say, Lord, is there anything in my temple that shouldn't be there? Now look in chapter 7, verse 1, as he continues. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves. So just like the Lord went into the temple and cleansed the temple or purified his temple, so we have to cleanse our own temple. And remember, Jesus cleansed the temple on more than one occasion. He did it early in John. He did it late in the Gospel of Mark. And we have to cleanse our temple over and over and over again. Sometimes thoughts come in that you say, that shouldn't be in my mind. Feelings, ambitions, You've got to cleanse your heart. And this is one of the reasons why we have the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, to give you a chance to examine your heart. But don't just wait till the Lord's Supper. Every day, stand before God before you go to bed or when you get up in the morning or through the day. Say, Lord, is there anything in my temple that shouldn't be there? The money changers were in your temple in the old times. Is there anything in my life that shouldn't be there? You say, well, how do I cleanse it? How do I get this stuff out? Go back to chapter 6, verse 17. He talks about the promises in chapter 7, verse 1. And the promises, I guess they start in verse 16. 
chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Here are the promises now. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. These are great promises that God gives to everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus. And he essentially makes this wonderful promise to all of you. As you look in your temple and you say, oh, I have thoughts that shouldn't be there. I have feelings or behaviors that shouldn't be there. What can I do to cleanse my temple like Jesus cleansed the temple in the, in the old times? He says, if you come out from among all of that and you come to me, there's this wonderful promise in James that says it this way, you draw nigh to me and I'll draw nigh to you. And you start making some steps towards the Lord, and the Lord will make abundant steps towards you. And then he says, I'll be a father to you. And we know he's our father. He's our heavenly father. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the father of all who are in the church. But the idea here, here I'll be able to act towards you as a father. And a father always protects his children. A father always drives the enemies away from his children. A father always loves and helps their children clean their room or do their homework or whatever the child needs the father is always there to help and if you have something in your life today that you're ashamed of and you say pastor I don't know how to get this out of my life will you draw nigh to God he will draw nigh to you and then he will help you and you will find him to be an abundantly good help at driving things out of temples that shouldn't be there. His son did it so well in Mark chapter 11. And anything that's in your life that shouldn't be there, God can help you to get rid of it, and he can help you to get rid of it today. And that's just some of what our Lord did on the last steps of the greatest journey on earth, he went to the temple to pray and to cleanse or purify his temple. And I would encourage all of you who are taking any journeys of any sorts, and we all have to take that one great journey one day through death, be in prayer and purifying your temple so that when he comes to you, he finds you in a way that honors him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today and to serve the Lord's Supper. I pray for those who today may have something in their life that they're struggling with and they know should not be there. If you're here today and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, then it's not a wonder you're struggling, you're on your own. Why don't you believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as your own personal Savior and then he'll come in and he'll clean up so many and all of the messes that you have in your life. He'll give you eternal life and one day take you to heaven when you die. And Heavenly Father, I pray for those as well who are Christians but they're still struggling. And I'd like to say a special prayer for you today if you're really struggling with something in your life. You don't have to come forward and tell me. You don't even have to raise your hand. I know that some of the things that are in your life would be very embarrassing and you wouldn't want anybody to know about. So I don't have to know about it. 
but I'll pray for you. And would you just in this quiet moment lift that thing that's wrong in your heart up to God and maybe pray a little prayer like this. Dear Lord, you know that this thing in my life is not right. And I'm sorry that I do these things. I know that your son, the Lord Jesus, would never act like that. And I want to be more like Jesus. But Lord, I have no power. So would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength to have victory in this area. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that if you would rely on God's Holy Spirit, not just at this moment, but tomorrow and Tuesday and all the way through the week, and you say, I need the Holy Spirit to help me. I need God's Holy Spirit to help me. If you're a Christian, you have him. And he is well-versed in driving things out of people's lives that shouldn't be there. He'll help you. And you'll be able to stand in this church in the future and say, boy, I used to have this thing that kept me in bondage, and now I'm free. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.